Well, good morning. How is everybody this morning? Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, I'm excited. I'm glad to see y'all here this morning. Um, just to let you know, I, I, like I let the Sunday school class know this morning, I broke my rule. My rule is no coffee in the morning before I preach, and uh, I broke my rule. So I had a lot of coffee, and I can feel it. I can feel it. So, uh, so y'all are in for a treat this morning. Uh, you may have to go back online and listen to it again more slowly because uh, I got a feeling I'm going to be wound up today. But we are in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 today. The title of the sermon is Ask, Seek, Search, Knock, or Ask, Seek, Knock. Either one. That's what it should be. <clears throat> Before we get started, let's pray. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you for your love for us. Father, thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that you will help us to understand it and live it today. Father, your word is truth, and if we can live by it, then we will live the way you designed us to live, and that your kingdom will grow on this earth, which is what we want to see. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts, good things, to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, when you read that passage or you hear that passage, how do you understand it? You know, what, what do you think is teaching? Do you think, like I did and I believe most Americans in the 21st century do, do you think it means anything I pray for, I should get? Because God is good and will give me, right here, good things if I ask for them. And if I don't get them, then either the Bible is not true, which causes me to doubt God's existence at all, or I must not have had enough faith. So why do we think these, thing, these things? Why do we think that way? Or why does the overwhelming majority of new Christians in America think that way? I think, bear with me, I think it's because we're spoiled. I mean it. We are the most blessed people materially that has ever lived on this planet. We have running water. And the kids think, hadn't everybody always had running water? <laughs> well, our grandparents didn't. We have running water. We have 
electricity, we have heat, we have air conditioning, we have refrigerators. We have food from all over the world. Bananas do not grow here. We have food from all over the world. We eat on a daily basis the way that only royalty has eaten for the majority of human history. Do you ever think about that? The, the dishes that you go and get at a restaurant with all the seasonings and flavors and combinations of peppers and onions and, and all the good stuff. You know, I like La Fiesta, so I'm just telling my, you know, the chicken and pepper and cheese, queso. I mean, really, when queso was invented, queso cheese was invented, white queso specifically, when white queso cheese was invented, it, it just boggles my mind why any other cheese still exists. <laughs> why? Because once you invented queso, why waste your time and effort making any other type of cheese? It's just, oh, it's so good. But what we don't take, what we, what we don't take the time to think about is if you were to go back 2,000 years when this was written, the people in Jesus' day did not have queso or all kinds of seasonings and peppers and onions to go with their chicken or all kinds of the other beautiful and wonderful things that you eat every single day. They would have had salt, which, don't get me wrong, I love salt. It makes a dish great. But that would have been about it. The common person, salt. That's it. Fish, bread. That would have been the common meal. And then you had your, your animals that you could have slaughtered and had meat, but that was, as well, that would have been a luxury. Only the kings had all this stuff. Only the kings had all the amazing meals that we eat on a daily basis. But it's not just that. I might add, the one thing that we take for granted is a soft bed to lay on at night with a soft pillow. The overwhelming majority of people in the United States, even the poorest of the poor, unless you're literally sleeping on the streets, has a, has a mattress of some type and a pillow. And there are, there are millions of people all over the world today that don't have such a luxury. And throughout human history, only the, the, the most wealthy would have had luxurious things like a soft, nice, comfortable bed to lay on and a nice soft pillow to put under your head. You read David talk about putting a rock under his head. And I thought to myself, why would you do that? Because he didn't have a my pillow. He didn't. <laughs> he had a my rock. <laughs> we have the greatest, and, and a warm blanket. A warm blanket to lay under. There are laws in the Old Testament that you're not allowed to take a man's coat overnight because that's the only thing he had to keep him warm at night. They did not have a warm bed with a blanket. We have the greatest medicines and health care in the world. We have the greatest levels of sanitation, the greatest transportation. We can now fly. We can even leave the planet and come back safely. We have freedoms that are guaranteed to us, and I'm talking about Americans, by our Constitution. Freedom to speak freely 
without being beheaded like John the Baptist was because he told the king that it was unlawful for him to marry Herodias, his wife. And John the Baptist did not have freedom of speech and was beheaded. We have freedom to worship God without being afraid that we're going to be hanged or cut to pieces or tortured or to have our families tortured, which is still happening around the world today. We have freedom to own weapons to defend ourselves, our loved ones, and the innocent against those who commit evil, including our own government in times past. We are free, we have freedom from the government to take away our property without compensation. We have freedom from being punished more severely than our crimes deserve. We have freedom to vote for our leaders so that we may put the people who have the ultimate power in this country and, and that all of our leaders only have that power because the people have bestowed it on them and not the other way around. We as a people have bestowed power on our leaders and that's how they have power because we have bestowed it on them and not the other way around. And we can vote and we can remove them from government if they try to use their power to take away our rights. All of this is in the Constitution and the amendments to the Constitution. That's why we're so blessed, but it's also why we're so spoiled. Why do I say that? Because when we say that we have everything we need as Americans, that is a gross understatement. Oh, we have everything we need as Americans. We have a million times more than what we need as Americans. And we have our entire life. We are truly blessed. And as a country, we are not just blessed, we are spoiled. Why? because we don't appreciate our blessings as a country. Of course, that's a general statement about the country as a whole. It's not a specific statement about any individuals, but that's what spoiled is. That's what spoiled is. When you're given far more than you need and you don't appreciate it, that's what it means to be spoiled. And I cannot look at our country and not see that in my own life, in my own growing up, and not see it everywhere around me. We have far more than we need, and we don't appreciate it like we should. We don't thank God for all the blessings that we have like we should. We don't come to Him in grateful appreciation like we should. And that makes all of us spoiled. <clears throat> now, when we read this passage, it tells us to ask, seek, and knock and we will receive, find, and it will be opened. We think it's about asking for, you ready? This is what we've all thought at some point, if not today. We think it's about asking for wealth, seeking comforts, and knocking on the doors of opportunities for successes. And when we don't get the very things God has told us not to ask for, when we don't get those things, we think that either he's not real or I didn't have enough faith. And so we either walk away from him or we try harder and harder to keep asking for the wrong things that he has promised he will not give us. And that puts 
our faith in a crisis, by and large. James tells us, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So, if material wealth or health is not what God is telling us to ask for, then what is he telling us to ask for? Because it seems pretty obvious from the context that, that what, that's what he's saying he's going to give us, right? Isn't that from the context? Doesn't that seem like that's the obvious what he's telling us? He's going to give us anything we ask for? Well, let's read it again. But let's also look at it from its parallel passage in Luke, and then we'll come back to it again. So let's read it one more time. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him. So first things first, I'll try to be quick. I'm not talking near as fast as I thought I would at the beginning. I gave you all that warning about coffee, so I'll try to make up for that. I don't want to lie to you. All right, so in Matthew and Luke, in Matthew and Luke, Luke, in Matthew and Luke, it does not say door. Now, most translations don't. So your translation that you're used to, King James, New American Standard, English Standard Version, most translations don't put door. Christian Standard does put door. And they, I, I, it, it's not, it doesn't change the meaning, but it makes it harder for us as 21st century Americans to really grasp what's being said. And the reason I say that is because I believe there is no word door. It just says it will be opened. It's just the word opened. It's just conjugated in a way, and so it just means it'll be opened. It doesn't say door will be opened or knock at the door. It just says knock, and it'll be opened. If you're going to put in a word to make people, help people understand what this really means, I think they shouldn't have picked door. I think they should have picked gate. Because you come to a gate. Think about coming to a city gate. If the gate is closed, you knock at the gate. And in Matthew's context, that's exactly what he ends up saying right after this verse. He talks about the gates. Um, but it says, how much more will your Father in heaven give what? Give what? Good things. Good things. So how do we know that's not referring to health and wealth? All right. We're going to look at Luke to figure it out. Luke chapter 11, verses 1. Well, I'm going to keep on going. Starting in verse 1, it says, He was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. So Jesus is going to teach his disciples how to pray. He said to them, Whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And you say, man, they really messed that up. They didn't learn the Lord's Prayer right. Like, you know, it's not how it goes. We know how it goes. There's one way it goes. That's how Matthew says it, but no. So Luke tells us the same thing. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And he tells them to pray for what? What does he tell them to pray for? Your needs. He says to pray back right here. He says to pray for your kingdom to come, to pray for the kingdom to grow. But then he teaches us to pray 
for your needs, not luxury, not comfort, not all these extra things. So he says to pray for your needs. He goes on and says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us, and do not bring us into temptation. So he teaches them how to pray. That's the end of the Lord's Prayer in Luke. He teaches them how to pray. Then he goes on to tell a parable about prayer. Now listen to his parable. He also said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. Context. We think our life, you know, we got a bed, we got parents have their own rooms, kids have other rooms, you know. That's generally how it goes in America. The way this context was is most homes were so small that pretty much everything was one room. That was it. If you're, if you're lucky, you had more than one level, and so you had one big room downstairs, one big room upstairs, and when we say big, we're not talking big, okay? Smaller than most rooms in your house. And so what happens is you had like this hard bench area, and then this hard bench area is where you sat to eat your meals during the day, but then at night, you as a family would lay down on that hard bench area, and all of you, husband, wife, and kids, would all come together and sleep on this hard bench together and you would use your 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 cloak to cover everybody so that everybody would stay warm at night because you didn't have you you weren't rich enough the common person wasn't rich enough to have their own heat system in their house so you used each other and your warm cloak to keep yourselves warm at night because in the desert it gets really cold at night you may think that's crazy but it's true so he's laying there with his kids on him and that's the best way to make friends is to go to your friend's house in the middle of the night and wake up their kids, isn't it? <laughs> you starting to see the picture here? This is the picture they would have understood. He went to his friend's house at midnight, knocked on the door, said, I need three loaves of bread because I had a visitor come and I need to feed them. And the person like you and me would said, uh-uh, come back tomorrow. I got the kids asleep. I can't get out of bed. That's the context. <clears throat> I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Why? Because you can be honest with your friends and say, come back tomorrow. <laughs> even though he won't do that because of, he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness or persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Did he come? What did he come and ask for? Three loaves of bread. Three loaves of bread. He didn't come and ask for three bottles of wine so that him and his friends could party up all night and wake you up with your kids. He came and asked for what he needed. Not luxury, not wants, needs. And he said he got up and he gave him as much as he needs. So, it seems obvious what Luke is talking about here, right? Ask for whatever you need, and God will give you what you ask for. That seems right, doesn't it? If you put it in context, it's saying God says, ask anything you need, and, we'll give, and God will just give you anything you need if you'll ask for it in prayer. I'm going to twist it again and say, I still don't think that's the right interpretation. Let's keep reading. So then Luke gets to the parallel passage as Matthew, the same passage we're talking about in Matthew. He says, so I say to you, Ask and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now, the next verse is the last verse. But before we read it, we're going to jump back to Matthew's version. Okay? Matthew's version says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what? Good things to those who ask him. So in the context, we're still thinking good things, right? Possessions, things, needs, loaves of bread, food. Now let's jump back to Luke. He says, Luke says, the same passage, except Luke instead of Matthew, if you then know who are, e- if you then who are evil, let's not get into it right now, but just so you know, Jesus said there is none good but God alone. He literally calls us evil here. So a biblical understanding of our own sinfulness is not that we're pretty good people. It's that literally, according to God's righteousness, we are evil. Jesus called us evil, okay? So never think somebody else is worse than you. All right, but that's another, another topic for another sermon. So Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give what? That's not what he says. This is what he says. The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And you say, how could he be that far off? How could Luke have got it so wrong? We know it's talking about things. We've been, we know the context. The context is things. The context is needs. The context is, even Matthew says good things, plural. The Holy Spirit in plural, unless you try to twist it into the Trinity and say the Trinity is plural, but, but the Holy Spirit is one thing, good things. So how do they match? Is Luke wrong? Is Luke mistaken? No, because Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit just as Matthew was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let me give you my thoughts on this. Matthew was written before Luke, okay? The Gospel of Matthew was written before the Gospel of Luke. Luke came along and said at the beginning of his Gospel, I have come to, to I have searched and studied and asked and interviewed so that I can come and give you th- Theophilus an orderly account of the, of, of the faith that you have, okay? So Luke goes around, interviews a lot of people, Matthew, Peter, Paul, he interviews a lot of people to write his gospel, okay? So Matthew was written before Luke. Luke comes along and clarifies some of the misunderstandings of early Christians. Now, I'm not saying that Matthew was wrong because he wasn't. Matthew was not wrong to say good things. But people obviously did the same thing then as we do today. We misunderstand what they're talking about, obviously. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit would have felt no need to clarify in the Gospel of Luke what he said clearly in the Gospel of Matthew because we will take what God says and we will misunderstand it or or twist it. And sometimes, innocently, we just don't even realize because we're spoiled, we don't even realize that we did that. We just don't even recognize it. So, we will listen to Jesus teach about the dangers of wealth and not to chase after wealth, and don't pursue wealth, 
Then he'll teach us to pray for just what we need. And then after all of that, after we've listened to him talk about dangers of wealth and all that, he will then say for us to ask and we will receive. And what's the first thing we do? We say, hey, God said that if I ask for wealth, I'll get it. That's what we do. Jesus preaches and preaches and preaches and preaches. Don't chase after wealth. Don't go after wealth. Don't try to pursue the worldly things of this world. Oh, by the way, let me teach you how to pray to God. Pray, Father, I want to see your kingdom come. I, I want you to give me just what I need, and I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and I want you to protect me from the evil one. And then right after that, Jesus says, Ask, and it'll be given. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it'll be open to you. And then we'll say, all right, if I ask for wealth and I ask for prosperity, he promised he'll give it to me. Why? Because we're spoiled. It's true. Because we grew up in a country where we've always had what we needed and we've always been chasing after what we want. So we take a verse where he says, ask and I'll give it to you. And then we say, yes, anything I want, I can ask for and he'll give it to me. And the whole time, we'll do that. And then Jesus is like, you ignored everything I said because I said something that sounded like something you wanted and you just clung to it and just ignored everything I said. And that's what we've all done. I'm telling you, I know I have. And I would, I would be surprised if you've grown up in the United States your whole life and you haven't done the same thing. <coughs> So, let's jump back to Matthew. Now, keep in mind, in Matthew, Jesus also had just finished saying, teaching us how to pray in the same Sermon on the Mount. Remember, we just went over there a few weeks ago? Jesus also taught the same thing Luke taught about how to pray. He said, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So he taught us to pray for our needs to be forgiven and to protect us from Satan and to pray for what else? He, he taught us to pray for our needs, to pray to be forgiven, to protect us from Satan, and he taught us to pray for something else. Anybody remember? That God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. He said to pray for the kingdom of God to come here to earth and to be here just like it is in heaven. So when he told us to ask, he said for us to ask for our needs and for the kingdom of God to move forward. Then he taught us about the dangers of chasing after wealth. And instead of storing up treasures on earth, we should start to store up what we will really treasure in heaven. And that's what? People. I see your lips moving. Uh, Y'all just afraid to speak up. It's okay. So after he teaches us to pray for what we need and to pray for the kingdom to come, he then goes on to preach about don't chase after wealth, don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven, which is what we're really going to treasure, which is people. So instead of seeking after wealth and material wants, we should seek after the kingdom of God. Then he says, so don't worry saying, what, we will eat, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first what? 
the kingdom of God. So he teaches us to seek what? The kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. So when he said to seek and we will find, he didn't mean we should seek after wealth. He just told us not to. But that we should seek the kingdom of God. And when he said knock, he wasn't referring to knocking on the door of opportunity to gain more wealth or success. I don't believe he was referring to a door at all. I told you, I believe, you know, the word door is not in Matthew or Luke. Most of your translations don't put it in there. Even though it doesn't really change the ultimate meaning of the passage, I think it, you know, makes it harder for us to understand. I think he's talking about knock at the gates. The gates to heaven. Because the very next thing Matthew teaches is talking about enter through the narrow gate. That's the very next thing Matthew teaches. So imagine yourself standing at one of the gates of heaven and knocking to get in and the gate being opened to you. Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And then Luke goes on to tell us these things that God's going to give you is the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> All right, Matthew seven thirteen fourteen. 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few will find it. So he's talking about, I believe Matthew's talking about gates not doors in this context. But Luke had just told a parable of a man knocking on his neighbor's door in the middle of the night. So in Luke's context, it would not be wrong to use the word door. You see how context changes depending on what you're using? In Matthew, he could be referring to gates. In Luke, he could still be referring to a door, but the Holy Spirit didn't inspire to use one word or the other. He didn't put either in there. So here's an example of another version just so you understand. Matthew 7, 7 and 8 of the New American Standard. It said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and him who knocks it will be opened. So when Jesus teaches us to ask, seek and knock, he's talking about the kingdom of God. And when he says, How much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Those good things, I believe, are the things of the kingdom. The answer to your prayers when you're praying for the kingdom of God. He's going to give you those good things to see the kingdom move forward, the things of the kingdom. So when Luke records Jesus' same teaching, instead of good things, he just says the Holy Spirit. So there's no confusion about what we are, what we are to be asking for. What are we to be seeking? And what door should we be knocking on that God has promised to open? And that is the door to the kingdom of God. We should be asking for God's kingdom to come. We should be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we should be knocking on the gates of the kingdom of God. That is the door God has promised to open. And when he does, we will receive the Holy Spirit of God. So when you knock on the gates of the kingdom and God promises he will open those gates, guess what you get? The Holy Spirit. He comes to live within you and you are now saved. God has always taught a very consistent message and has made a promise to answer our prayers consistently. He's promised 
that he will not answer our prayers for worldly wealth and health to escape the effects of sin in the world because we don't like them. He himself did not avoid the effects of sin in the world. He suffered and endured pain and hardship. But he has promised to answer our prayers for the kingdom of God to come, to make us more into his image, and to forgive us and adopt us as his own children. It's only from that understanding and mindset that we can proclaim the same message that Paul proclaimed to the Philippians. That's what he's promised to answer. The kingdom. To answer our prayers for the kingdom. He'll give us what we need. And that's why Jesus said, don't chase after clothes and, and food and all these things. He said, because your heavenly father knows what you need and he'll give those things to you. He will give you what you need. He said, take the time. And if you don't have what you need, of course you should pray for what you need. But if you have what you need, you shouldn't be praying for more luxury, more comfort to escape the effects of sin in this world. We should be praying for the kingdom to move forward, even if it's painful, if it brings us harm, if we have to suffer, if we, uh, even if it brings all these things we don't like, we should be praying for the kingdom of God to move forward. And so Paul tells the Philippians, he says this, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It's granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Paul was in prison. He was in chains, and he considered it a blessing from God, not because of his own suffering, but because his suffering was strengthening the church and the kingdom of God was growing because of it. He said, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, this is the king now, the king at the time, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brethren's brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Paul was not praying for riches and comfort and health. He was praying for the kingdom to move forward and to grow, and it was. It was. Right after he finished telling that it has been granted to the Philippians not only to believe in God, but also to suffer for him, he tells them how they are to live on earth. So this is my imploring of you and myself of how we should live on earth in light of this mindset that we should pray for the kingdom to move forward. In light of that, that's what we should be praying for because that's what God's going to give us. This is how we should live. He said, If then there is any encouragement in Christ if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. You get that? This is an instruction on how we should pray. Do not pray out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. 
Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's the mindset we have to pray from, that I am going to consider others as more important than myself, that I am not going to pursue selfish ambition and conceit and wealth and gain for myself, but that I am going to look after not just my interests or the interests of my loved ones, but the interests of others. And if that mindset and that heart guides your prayers, your prayers will be the way Jesus taught us to pray. There will be prayers where we will pray for what we need, but then we're going to pray for the kingdom to move forward, regardless of the cost, regardless of personal cost, regardless if it means I won't have comfort, regardless if it means I won't have wealth, regardless if it means I won't have health, good health. Whatever the cost... I want to see the kingdom move forward, and God, I want to be a part of it, and I want you to help me be a part of it. And he will open doors for the ministry. He will. He will answer your prayers, and he will use you. <clears throat> Luke eleven thirteen. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so I end with this. Have you asked God for the Holy Spirit? Have you asked God to forgive you of your sins? Have you repented? Have you made the commitment to turn from sin to God? Do you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are in fact currently right now saved and that when you get to heaven, that those gates will be opened for you. Because if you don't know, you can know. 1 John 5.13 I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may, what? Know. That you, what? have eternal life i've written this letter to you first john i've written this letter to you so that you may know that you have eternal life not that you may hope you will get eternal life that you may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you currently have eternal life and so if god who inspired these words if God said this, then it is foolishness and arrogance to say, I know God said you can know you are saved, but I tell you, you can't know, and you're not saved yet. You will be saved one day, but you can't know that you will be saved. I would have to argue with God's plain words to make that stance. And so I'm telling you, you can know and you can be saved now. 
How? How can you be saved now and be assured of that salvation on the day of judgment? Because you will receive now the Holy Spirit of God now who will justify you before God now. And you will be saved now. Are you sure that you are saved? Are you sure? Do you know you have the Holy Spirit? Do you know you are forgiven? And do you know that on the day of judgment that you will stand before God and you will have your sins justified and atoned for and forgiven and the gates of heaven will open to you because they already have opened to you and God through the Holy Spirit has already come to you from that city. And you know because he promised if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you so that you may be where I am also. You can know. All you have to do is turn from sin and trust Jesus alone for your salvation. I'm going to throw a few verses at you because this always gets confused. You are saved by faith. Jesus, James said that genuine faith produces repentance. So if you have not turned from living in sin, you need to know this. If you have not turned from living in sin, then James says that's not real faith and it won't save you. Let's look at it. James 2.14 What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? We don't talk about works today, but works simply means doing good things instead of evil things. Good things are considered works. It means turning from sin. It means living in holiness. He says, if you claim to have faith, but you still live in sin, will that faith save you? Is what he says. Now keep in mind, will such Faith save you. He does not say, will such works save you? James does not believe you can be saved by works. He believes you are saved by faith and just faith. But he said people have faith and are saved and it produces repentance or people deceive themselves into believing they are saved and they don't have faith because they're still living in sin. They have not repented. And that's where James says it's the faith that saves you. But don't deceive yourselves. He says, in the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. And then he says, senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And what he means by this is faith with no works. Faith apart from works. Faith that is not accompanied by a life change. Because when the Holy Spirit of God comes to live within you and you turn from sin, your life will change. You will turn from sin to God. He, you can't. You don't want to sin anymore. You want to do right. You want to turn from living in sin to, against living in sin and God. Because the only thing that's separating you from God is sin. It's not your eye color. It's not your skin color. It's not your wealth or economic status. It's not your nationality. The only thing that separates you from God is sin. And that's what he's asked you to turn from. 
He said to turn from sin and to follow me, Jesus said. But you can't do one without the other. Because if you make the decision that I'm going to turn from doing wrong, who decides what's right and wrong? Let's assume you mean wrong according to God of the scriptures. Let's assume that's the God standard we're going by. If you decide I'm going to turn from doing wrong and try to live a good moral life, but I don't want to submit to Jesus and I don't want to live for him, all that means is I reject Jesus. Maybe I want to pursue a lifestyle of, of, of Buddhism, or maybe I want to pursue a lifestyle of Hinduism, and I want to live a really good life, but I reject Jesus. All that means is you rejected Jesus. You are not saved. But if you say, I believe that Jesus died for me, I believe that I'm saved through the sacrifice of his sin alone, and I don't believe any of these other religions, but I am not going to turn from sin. All that means is, you reject Jesus. Because you say, yeah, I believe he did that for me, but I am not going to submit to him. I'm not going to turn from sin because I don't want to stop sinning. I'm going to live, for, I'm going to live in sin, live for myself. I'm not going to live for Jesus. All that means is I rejected Jesus. So you can't have one without the other. True faith leads to a lifestyle of repentance. Does it have to be perfect? No, but it has to be real faith. It has to be real faith, not faith alone. Faith without works, faith without evidence of conversion. It has to be real faith. So please, don't reject him. There's all kinds of ways of rejecting him. Don't reject him. He gave you life. He gave you existence. He gave you breath. He is the reason you exist. And he has done everything to save you. He has come. He has died on the cross for your sins. Do not reject him any longer. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Father, we could never, ever go through the depths of your scripture. For the rest of our lives, we will continue to learn of how great your love is for us. That you left your throne in heaven, that you came and died for our sins so that we could be forgiven and adopted as your children to spend eternity with you. You've done it all. You've done it all. All you ask is that we embrace you, that we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You want us to embrace you, to love you, to, per, to follow you, to run after you, to be in relationship with you, because we're going to be in a relationship with you for all of eternity. There is no greater thing that you could give us than yourself. Father, shape our prayers and shape our hearts so that we would not pursue these worldly things that will not last any longer, but that we would pursue your kingdom and you. That we would pray not for more comfort and not for more material wealth, not for the things that we want on this earth to make life easier, but, Father, help us to pray to grow your kingdom so that more people will be saved and enter your kingdom and spend eternity with you forever. Father, shape our hearts and shape our prayers. And, Father, you pray that if we will pray these things, that if we will seek the kingdom of God and that we will pray that it, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven and that we will pray for our needs that if we would pray for you to protect us from the evil one, that you have promised you will do so, and we will see our prayers answered. Father, we want to see your kingdom grow. We love you. 
We can never thank you enough for your love for us. Help us to be amazing examples of your Son, Jesus Christ. We love you, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen.